0: Thank you, Dana and Joe and Richard, even though you didn't play any of the songs that I asked you to play. (laughs) Um, Before we get started uh, this morning, one quick announcement that was brought to my attention after uh, I did announcements earlier. Uh, Someone has graciously given us several copies and will continue to give us several copies of Table Talk magazine. This is... um, a brief magazine published by uh, some people uh, in our denomination. There's often lots of great articles in these. So if you're interested in reading about theology, um, there will generally be a couple of copies of this out on the uh, welcome kiosk. So if you're interested, grab one of those. Table Talk magazine, lots of good stuff in there. Um, So if you're interested, avail yourself of that. So as we begin, I was thinking just a few minutes ago Um, I think the first sermon that I ever preached was on the Sunday after Christmas uh, while I was in seminary, Uh, and I believe that I've preached the Sundays after Christmas every year since then, Uh, so welcome to Youth Pastor Sunday, (laughs) a.k.a. all the pastors are on vacation, so you get me. Um, But uh, we... uh, We still get to hear uh, from God's word, and it is his word uh, that brings life, not my words. So um, this past week, uh, I took a little road trip with some family uh, to a really interesting place uh, down in the Texas hill country. Uh, It's a place that they call Texas's most successful ghost town, uh, in the late 1800's, this town was founded uh, by German farmers who had settled along the Guadalupe River. And by the year 1900, uh, there was a thriving town it, with all kinds of sin- significant industries. There was uh, a central cotton ginning industry. All of the cotton grown in the area was taken to this town uh, to be um, processed. There was a thriving banking industry. and, and And this little town was the shipping center for all of the cotton in the region. And if you've been to the Texas Hill Country, you know there's a lot of cotton. Um, And so this was a bustling town. It was filled with gorgeous buildings with rich history. Um, But later on in the 1900s, there was a significant infestation of the boll weevil that destroyed many uh, of the crops of cotton. And then right on the heels of that came the Great Depression, and by the year 1950, this once bustling town filled with industry, filled with people, it was totally abandoned. It had become forgotten, and was, in the, in the truest sense of the word, a ghost town. And this little town sat forgotten, abandoned, and largely in ruins, until one day in 1974, there was a college student from the University of Texas um, who was taking a float trip down the Guadalupe River. And he decided, you know, I'm going to go a little further than I had planned, and I'm going I'm to take out of the river further downstream than I had intended to. And so he goes a bit further, and when he takes out of the river, he looks and he sees some, some old structures off in the distance, and he says, what, what is this? I'm... I've got to go investigate. And so he begins to hike in that direction, and he, he, he discovers this ghost town. He discovers all of these gorgeous, historic buildings that are totally abandoned. And so he says, something has to be done about this. This can't sit in ruins like this. So he contacted uh, state officials uh, and, and sought to, and eventually was successful, to get many of these buildings added to the Texas Registry of Historic Places. He sought out uh, business people and investors and got them to purchase many of these buildings and renovate them. Uh, and and over, over the course of several years, this town began to come back to life. Green, Texas, began to thrive once again, but this time as a tourist destination and a place of historic interest. The town was dead. It was a ruin long forgotten until this young man's arrival brought new life. Today, countless people visit this town each Year and just this past April, it was named one of the top off-the-radar getaways in the lower 48 states by Men's Health magazine. Uh, I was there just this past week. It is a fascinating historic place. It is beautiful, and there are people everywhere. This morning, we consider another ruin, best forgotten and left to rot. And we consider the arrival of another that brings life where there is nothing but death and despair and ruin. Our passage this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the pew back in front of you. Or our passage for this morning is printed for you in your bulletin. As we read this passage, I want you to think back to the New Testament passage from Revelation that Joey read a few minutes ago. Um, The Apostle John in the writing of Revelation, uh, particularly chapter 22, uh, has has this vision of the prophet Ezekiel in mind, and we'll do a number of things to see the connection between the two as we work through this text. So will you pray with me uh, as we prepare to hear from God's holy word? Father in your goodness and grace, reveal your Son to us that we may behold His beauty. Open our eyes to see to see our sin, and to see His goodness and mercy, and to respond by turning to him in, in faith. Father, through your word that is an inexhaustible fountain of grace, fill our hearts to overflowing for the glory of Christ and the good of the world. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Ezekiel chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. "'The water was flowing down from below "'the south end of the threshold of the temple, "'south of the altar. "'Then he brought me out by way of the north gate "'and led me around on the outside to the outer gate "'that faces toward the east. "'And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. "'Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, "'the man measured a thousand cubits "'and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. "'Again he measured a thousand "'and led me through the water, and it was knee deep.' Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees, on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for the salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Surely the people of Israel in exile in a foreign land, having suffered God's judgment for years, felt death, felt abandonment, saw themselves as a people rotting away without any hope for new life. Likewise, as we consider our own broken existence, we too feel death's keen sting. We too wonder, is there any hope for our lives, for our cities, for our broken world. Consider it. Consider the death that surrounds and penetrates us. Consider the sin that you just can't seem to overcome no matter how hard you try. Consider the conflict in your marriage, the distress that plagues your family life. Consider the cancer that ravages your body, or the body of someone that you love dearly. Consider the loneliness that at times leads you to cry yourself to sleep at night, or the anxiety of the bills that you don't know how you're going to pay, the stress of your job, And on and on and on. Everything else. Death is our condition. We, you and I, are like walking ghost towns. But this death, it goes well beyond each of us individually. It fills this body. Think of the conflict with brothers and sisters in church. The arguments over who knows what. The bitterness that you cling to over various situations. And even stretching beyond these walls, think of the brokenness of our city. Drive down the street even this morning, and in the freezing cold, you'll see homeless people on the street corners begging for help. Think of the history of our city, the way our town was ravaged by The race riots of the 1920s. Look at the prisons here in our city and around our state that so often are bursting at the seams, filled to capacities. Think of the epidemic of methamphetamine addiction that plagues the state of Oklahoma. But the darkness spreads even beyond our state Beyond our nation, it seems to have no end. Think of wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, tsunamis, starvation, human trafficking, terrorism. On and on and on the list goes. The brokenness, the darkness, the despair, the pain. We dwell as dead men walking in a barren, forgotten wasteland wrought by our sin. But there is hope. Ezekiel wrote the words of our text this morning in a land far from his home, surrounded by nothing but despair and judgment and pain. But he saw a river flowing from the temple of the Lord that would bring life to everything and everyone that it touched So what is the source of this life? Ezekiel had this glorious vision of new life, of restoration, but where does it come from? He describes this stunning scene of a river flowing from the temple, bringing life to all. Ezekiel's message of hope was for his people, but it is no less a message for us. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, the temple was understood to be the source of life because it was the dwelling place of God among men. And the presence of God was the source of life. Ancient Israelites in exile after the temple had been destroyed thought that the rebuilding of the temple was their hope. But as we know From history, the rebuilding of the temple came and went and it did not bring the life that Ezekiel has described for us. But if we fast forward to the time of the Roman Empire when Israel had returned from exile, had rebuilt their temple but still lived in death's shadow, ruled by another empire, experiencing none of the abundant life of Ezekiel's vision. In this time, consider the words of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. In verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To the Jews of the second temple period, under the rule of the Roman Empire, Suffering under the oppression of Rome, suffering under the weight of their sin, not experiencing the abundant life that God had promised to them, a man came. And in his coming, there was new life. It wasn't all apparent at first just as in the opening illustration of that small town in Texas, it took many years for that little town to come back to life. In a a similar sense, it takes many years for the new life that has come fully in Christ, for that life to be apparent, for us to see it and taste it. It takes time but the dwelling place of God is with man the true temple came to earth in Jesus and it was from him that Ezekiel's river of life flows think of Jesus words in John chapter 4 as he spoke to the woman at the well if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you what? Living water. Jesus is the source of life itself because Jesus is life itself. All that is dead, all that is rotting, abandoned, and forgotten can find new life in him and only In him. He is the stream that began as a trickle at the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And he is that river that is making all things new. As we sang earlier this morning, he has indeed come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found whatever whatever sin and death have touched and corrupted and broken, Jesus has come to make that new. As we consider the new life of Christ, as we consider our salvation, his gift to us, we often think that it's about us. I think of my salvation I think of me being born again. And you think of your experience of coming to know Christ and all that has meant for you. That's the way we almost always think about the work of Christ. We think that it's about us, but nothing could actually be further from the truth. The work of Christ is not, friends, about saving individuals. Jesus did not come so that individuals could be saved. It's not the point. But rather, Jesus' work is about forming a redeemed people of God, a new community of redeemed people, and it's about bringing restoration to all of creation that has been broken by sin. Too often, our, our view of the gospel and of salvation, it's far, far too small. He didn't come for individuals. He came to make all things new. Don't ever lose sight of that. Think again of Ezekiel's vision. The waters of life, they flow from the temple, they flow toward the east. You see that phrase again and again in the passage, toward the east, toward the east. The imagery that Ezekiel is trying to communicate to us is that these waters of life that flow from the temple, they're spreading to the whole world. To the ancient Jew, the east was the ends of the earth. And so as the waters flow to the east, the idea is that they are flowing to the very edge of creation. They're going out to touch everything that is. The image is of the waters of life spreading to the whole world because God's mission of restoration is for all of creation. It's not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for American conservative Christians. No. It's for all of creation. And this life spreads, goes everywhere. The imagery is of this great river. I remember as a child, uh, my family took a vacation to Colorado. And one of the most vivid memories that I have is seeing on the top of a mountain in Colorado the headwaters of the Arkansas River. There on that mountain, it was barely a trickle But as those waters traveled toward the east, they form a great river that's home to all manner of wildlife. Now, the part of the Arkansas River that we see here is, we don't see what a great river it is because of dams and and things like that that man has built, but but think of a big rain and, and when you've seen that river and it's full to the brim, this is the imagery It's filled with all manner of wildlife, and along the river's route, it provides sustaining resources and great beauty to all those who dwell along its banks. No matter their race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. It brings life to all who live along its banks. Even here in our city, in Tulsa, uh, do you realize that the water that flows from your sink when you turn on the faucet that you probably drink every day comes from the Arkansas River? At least, depending on where you live, many of you, that's the case. Um, (laughs) Some of you get lake water or well water, but the the principle's intact. I know I asked Keith Kirkaby and he works for the city's water (laughs) department. But it doesn't even end here. It flows on further east into the Mississippi River where it provides further life. Then on into the Gulf of Mexico and out into the world's ocean. That that tiny trickle that I saw on a mountaintop as a child has actually tangibly given life to me and to you and to countless others. And, And this is the imagery that Ezekiel gives to us. This new life that flows from the presence of God among men and it goes out and it spreads and brings restoration to all of creation. The coming of Jesus was not for one people or one place but for the restoration of all of creation. The great theologian Abraham Kuyper, you may be familiar with him, he's famously quoted as saying, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. So I'm fascinated by the medieval period in history. I love to read about that period or watch movies or TV shows that are uh, depicting that period. I love fantasy novels and movies that kind of mimic the the medieval ethos. The knights, the kings, the battles. I love reading that stuff or watching that stuff. And there's an interesting legal phrase that was birthed in uh, the medieval Anglo-Saxon world this phrase, the king's peace. Have you heard this phrase? The king's peace. The realm under the authority of a king was to be kept safe by him. It was his responsibility that his lands be at peace. And when there was unrest, he would send the knights that served him to restore the king's peace. When when he would send his armies out to conquer new lands and expand his domain, it would be described as bringing the king's peace to a new land. And even when there was no uprising or conflict or war going on, He still sent his knights out into his realm to keep the king's peace, to make sure that his lands remained peaceful and flourishing in his name. In the medieval world, the king was the source of peace, it flowed from him, and those who served him were agents of that peace. Now, as as I think most of us know, there is no greater source of peace than Christ himself. Earlier in our service, we had a, a segment of the service that we describe as the passing of the peace, the sharing with one another the peace that has been given to us in Christ. Because of our relationship to him, we experience his peace, and so we share that peace with one another. And just as the knights of the medieval period were charged to keep and restore and bring the king's peace to the realm, we are to be bringers and keepers and restorers of peace in all of our king's domain. And since there is not one square inch in all of human existence over which King Jesus does not cry out, mine, then there is not one square inch in which we, his people, are not called to be bringers and keepers and restorers of King Jesus' peace. As As the river of life that is our Savior flows, we are to be its agents, sharing that life, bringing that peace, being his agents in restoration to all that is broken in our world. The Apostle John was keenly aware of the imagery of this vision in Ezekiel. Again and again in John's gospel, he alludes to this passage that we consider this morning, as well as in his epistles and as we saw a couple of times in the book of Revelation, also written by the Apostle John. Um, uh, Revelation 22 that Joey read is, you could think that it was, I mean, he basically plagiarized it. That's what he did. Um, it's, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, the imagery is the same. John was keenly aware of the imagery of, of a river of living water. Again and again, he reminds us of this image. And so uh, perhaps as you, you hear what I've described in these past few minutes, you're thinking, Ethan, I think you might have gotten a little afield from, uh, from Ezekiel's vision. I mean, you're talking about us going out and spreading peace and life and restoration. But, but all that Ezekiel is describing is, is the work of God, the, the river flowing and going out. So you may think that I've made some leaps in my interpretation, but I'm allowed to do that because I'm doing it through the lens of the Apostle John elsewhere in Scripture. In chapter 7, verse 38 of John's Gospel, he again takes up this vision this imagery as he records Jesus' own words when Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. There's no mistaking the connection between the streams of living water flowing from the heart of all those who believe in Christ and the stream of living water in Ezekiel 47 that flows from the temple. They are one in the same. Jesus knew, and John understood, that Jesus was the source of life, that Jesus would bring life to all, but that Jesus would pour out his life into his people and that his people would be bringers of the life of Christ in his name. Jesus knew and thoroughly intended that his people be the bringers, keepers, and restorers of his peace and life wherever they went in all the world. It would be through his people that the river of life would spread over all of creation. Now, as we have discussed, the world is a dark and broken place. It's filled with death. Our hearts are dark, and broken, filled with death. But Christ is the bringer of new life, and as his people were called to share in his mission of bringing restoration to all that is. But what does that look like? I mean, Ezekiel's vision, it's it's just all imagery and metaphor and water and trees and fruit and fish. I mean, what does that look like in my life, in your life? How do we embody the ideas that Ezekiel lays before us here in our lives. Well, this life that Ezekiel is describing, it is life to its fullest. Now, Ezekiel concludes his vision by telling of trees that grow on the banks of the river, trees that yield fruit that are good for food year around. There's a clear connection between those trees and the trees in the Garden of Eden. But this time, with these trees that grow along the bank of the river, there is no restriction. The fruit of the trees is given freely to all who would come. There is only grace, hope, and life. The fullness of life that Ezekiel envisioned is creation restored. Eden as it should have been. Eden as it should have been. So then, the mission of God carried out, into, carried out in Christ and into which his church is called to participate is a mis- mission of restoration in which the curse of the fall is being undone. So to the question of practicality, what does this look like in my daily life, it looks like pushing back the darkness of the fall and bringing the new creation to bear wherever you go and in whatever you do. So let me give you a few examples. This list of examples is by no means all-encompassing. It's very Brief to help you understand the kinds of things that I'm talking about. What does it look like to push back darkness and bring new life? Many of you in this room are doctors and you work to treat the sick, to heal those that are suffering, to ease their suffering. You're participating in in God's mission of restoration. You're pushing back the darkness of the fall. Others of you are businessmen, and you work to cultivate economic thriving in your spheres of work, economic flourishing. This too, in this too, you, you can be participating in the mission of God to push back the darkness of Poverty and dysfunction and economic stagnation and those kinds of things. Some of you are artists or musicians. You're putting the beauty of God's creation on display. In this, you are participating in the mission of God. Whatever your vocation is, Whatever your hobbies are, whatever things you do, and in whatever places you go, look for the stain of sin and the brokenness that has come as the result of the fall. And look to bring the gospel, the good news of the restoration of all things into contact with that darkness. Because when the light of the gospel meets the darkness of the fall, the light always wins. This morning when this room was dark and someone came in here and flipped those light switches, there was no question as to whether or not the room was going to stay dark. When the light enters, the darkness always flees. And this is the mission of God that he has laid before you. This is the way that you embody the hope of Ezekiel 47. Look for the brokenness. Look for the darkness. Look for the stain of sin. And look to bring the hope of the gospel to bear Now, some of you, you're weary, you're hurting, you're stressed, you're anxious, you're lonely, you're afraid. You look back on the year that has that is coming to an end, and you think, man, what an epic failure. And you look to the year ahead and and you just tremble, thinking, How am I gonna, how am I gonna gonna get through this? You're weary, you're hurting. You're overwhelmed with fear and shame. You don't know how to bring your struggles to an end. Friends, if that's you, come to the river of grace and drink your fill. Jesus stands before you and offers himself. He says, come and drink of me. And in me, you will find life. That doesn't mean all the struggles will magically go away. But, but just like if you go and take a long hike in the heat of summer, you have to have water with you. And the water doesn't make it easy to do the long, hard hike, but it sustains you through the trials. And ultimately, It does bring restoration on the other side of the dark road, the painful road. So as we sang, I'm referencing all the songs this morning, as we sang earlier, come, all you pining, hungry, poor, the Savior's bounty taste. Come and drink your fill that you might overflow and be a source of life to those around you. Let's pray. Father, we have heard from your word and we ask that your word would work, that it would bring hope and life and peace, that it would empower your people to be agents of that hope and life and peace, that as we leave this place this morning, We would leave it as those full of grace that we might extend grace. In Christ's name, we humbly ask these things. Amen.